I recently had a conversation with a young man who is struggling with whether or not to believe in God. And the question he raised first is, why, if God is in control, is there so much suffering in the world? And uh, that's an incredibly common question, right? I told him that. Man, everyone has this question. And of course, it's a problem. The, The suffering in the world is a problem no matter what your faith system is. Why is it that our world is broken? Everyone needs an answer to that. And it's a prevalent question as well in the Bible. So that's your question. If you come to the Bible with that question, you're coming to the right place because the Bible is is uh, in many places written for that purpose, to answer those questions. We're starting uh, on Sunday mornings at Gospel Community Church, we're starting to go through the book of Job and to dive into this amazing book that was written to answer these questions. So we have... Texts like that, we also have Psalm 44. Psalm 44 points us to some of the answers as to why there's suffering in the world, why God allows us to suffer. You know, last week we looked at, or sorry, it's been a little while since we've done well, done one of these. We've had some technical difficulties, but the last Psalm we looked at was Psalms 42 and 43, and we treated them as one unified Psalm. And we saw in that Psalm, this individual who is crying out to God in his time of despair and hopelessness, and he's finding strength in God. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 44, which in a sense completes the thought of Psalms 42 and 43, but it moves from the individual person speaking to the corporate, the entirety of the nation, or to this corporate uh, unity of people. We're not sure if it's the entire nation or not, but it continues the same sense of disorientation and confusion from Psalms 42 and 43. And here we have this community looking to God for salvation in their time of trial. Uh, Commentator Gerald Wilson said, this is the first corporate prayer for help in the Psalter. So the God's people are coming together to ask for his help. At first read, as we read through this, it might seem like this psalm was written during the exile, but it's, it's hard to really place the time. And I think there's a good reason to say it was written before the exile, but it's speaking in terms of an exile, right? Being cast out from, from God. And what's maybe most odd about this psalm is that the psalmist is saying that this community he's part of hasn't sinned and therefore isn't deserving of the situation they're currently in. So that's that's pretty different because very often when we see the exile coming, other punishments on Israel to the nation, it's because of some direct sin. So we'll, we'll look into that a little bit. So this outline is, I adapted my outline from Derek Kidner and his outline, but it's yesterday's defeat, today's, I'm sorry, yesterday's victories, today's defeat, and searching for an answer. So three parts that we're going to look at. Verses 1 through 8, yesterday's victories. Verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You know, most of us haven't experienced the, the radical works of God. You know, I'm sure some people have, but you know, we often don't see these clear, objective, external miracles. Um, and so in that sense, right, we're in the same position as the psalmist was. He's saying, I, I haven't seen this directly, but I, I've, I've heard of it. I've heard of these, these things that you have done. And so the fathers here can refer to your actual father or to ancestors, right? That kind of is an all-encompassing term. So he's saying, we've had past generations pass on to us the faith and our understanding of God. They've told us about what you have done, God. You know, it made me think, I, I, this isn't the main point of this psalm, obviously, but you know, Nancy Piercy talks about how, how important it is for a father 
to instill their faith in their child, specifically a father. She, she writes this. She says, psychologist Vern Bengston, I'm not sure if it's the right pronunciation, pronunciation, but the psychologist did an award-winning 35-year longitudinal study finding that 68% of children who have a close relationship with their father will hold on to their father's religion. That is amazing. So just that one single factor of being close to your dad, having a good, healthy relationship will radically increase your, your chances of following after your father's religion. So that's an amazing thing. And it shows us the incredible value of having a close relationship with our children and, of course, actively instilling in them the faith. I mean, think about how much higher that must be if the father is actually intentionally discipling his child. They, they know he loves them and he, he teaches them God's word. So he's heard about God's works from the past generation from his fathers. And then verse two, it says, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So the the psalmist uh, begins to recount these works and he's focusing on God giving them the land. Now this is... This is significant in two ways, right? So one way this is significant, the giving of the land, is that God treated Israel so differently from other nations. There's a contrast in this verse. You know, why would God select Israel instead of other nations? But that's, that's what God did, right? There's a contrast here. And then the second reason it's significant is that they conquered by God's strength. You know, as they enter into the promised land, God has them do a few different things that are completely illogical and actually kind of cripple them and make them would make them ineffective for one thing they do when they cross the Jordan river, they've had this miracle, bring them through the waters. And now they're on the other side of the river. They're in hostile territory with a river at their backs that they cannot cross easily. And God tells them all the men to circumcise themselves, right? To be circumcised. And of course this leads to a fever a couple of days in, um, they're incapacitated and yet they obey. They do what God says in order to be obedient to him and to remember that they're dependent upon God or the battle of Jericho, which is the first battle. He doesn't really even allow them to attack, right? They just walk around in silence and then, right, finally they, they give a great shout and God tears the walls down. And so the reminder is that God is the one who gives them the strength. Um, this all points to God's delight in Israel. The reason why Israel was able to do what no other nation could do to drive out from the land seven other nations who were mightier than them, excuse me, the only reason they could do that was because God was with them. That's the only reason. Deuteronomy 7, 7 speaks to this truth. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Um, This is interesting. So he's saying it wasn't because of what you did, right? It's because God chose you. And so God chose them out of his love and because of his covenant with their forefathers that they could have this inheritance. It's an amazing thing. You know, do we have things like this in our lives, things that we can point to and say with certainty that we had absolutely nothing to do with it, that it was entirely the work of God? 
Well, absolutely, right? When you look at your life, the ways God has kept you secure or the blessings he's given to you, I hope you often think, wow, I would have nothing without God, right? The Lord is the one who gives everything to us. And of course, we can look first and foremost to the work of Jesus Christ, to his offering for our sins. And we can be absolutely positive. We never deserve that. Yet God gave his own son for us. And so we can look back as well and we can say, this was not by our hand. It was not by our sword, right? It wasn't because we did something right. It was because you delighted in us. Verse four, he says, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Now here there's suddenly a single speaker, which is interesting. So there's a change from this corporate uh, cry to now it's one speaker. And we're gonna see this individual speaker in verses 6, 15, and 16 as well. And a lot of commentators say this is probably the king of the nation who's crying out to God and acknowledging his lordship. And so the king is saying to God, you are my king, right? Even the king has a king. Uh, Psalm 23, we saw that David acknowledge this, right? He said, the Lord is my shepherd. David was called the metaphorical shepherd of Israel, meaning king. And here the shepherd of Israel says, the Lord is the true king. He's the true shepherd. So same thing happens here. And then he says, ordain salvation for Jacob. Uh, This idea of ordaining salvation means God has complete power to save or not to save. It's entirely dependent upon what God chooses to do. Does he choose to have grace or not? We would say that God is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over salvation. Now here it's obviously speaking of a physical rescue. It's not, I don't think it has in view here a spiritual salvation, but both are equally true. God has complete power when his people are in danger to rescue us from danger and he has complete power to rescue us from sin. God is sovereign over salvation. So here the people of Israel are actively putting their hope in God, just like Psalm 43, 5, right? That end of the last Psalm that, you know, says hope in God for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here he's saying, God ordained salvation for us. You are the one who saves, you are salvation. So we need you to act on our behalf. Verse five, he says, "Uh, through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. So he's acknowledging here again that victory is still in the name and the power of God. He points to the normal tools that a human would use to save himself, which would be a bow and a sword, right? Those are instruments of power, right? Ways to, to wield power and to defend yourself. And he's saying that the weapons then and the power to wield those weapons don't bring salvation. Ultimately, it's God himself who does that or will we'll never see salvation. And this is exactly what God's done in the past, right? So we've seen God's victory before and he's heard amazing stories of God's victories and now he's applying it to the moment he's in and saying, you're still the same God. Verse eight, in God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. God deserves all the credit for what he has done and he's deserving of eternal thanks. So, so far the Psalm is very uplifting, right? It's very powerful, very joyous. And yet then there's a shift, right? So he's talked about yesterday's victories, but now he's going to focus on today's defeats. So verses nine to 16, today's defeat. Verse nine, he says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. 
You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten a spoil. So here's where the tension in the psalm is introduced, right? We're, we're far into the psalm, and here there's some real tension here because there's a stark transition. Even though God is able to save, even though, even though he's sovereign to save, even though he's saved in the past, for some reason he's not saving them now. They're rejected. They're disgraced, he says. And more importantly, God is not with them. He's not going with them to battle like he used to. And so they're experiencing defeat. So here's the tension, right? He's wrestling with this. Why would God, God, if he's sovereign over salvation, why would he not save us? Verse 11, it says, You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. God has allowed his people to be killed. And he uses this powerful metaphor he's going to use at the end as well. Now, notice the repetition of the word you as I read the next verses. Verse 12, he says, you have sold your people for a, pri- for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So he's over and over again, he's saying, God, you have done this. You're responsible for putting us in this condition. And so notice again, he has, the psalmist has an incredibly high view of two different things. One of God's sovereignty. He believes God is in control of everything. And the Bible affirms that from cover to cover. And he also has a very high view of God's justice, that God will do what is right. And the Bible also confirms that. And this is exactly why he's frustrated. You know, it reminds me of in the book of Job, um, which we're going through right now. We just started, right? But Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so he understands, even though we know Satan is behind it, that God is sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over these circumstances and every bit of suffering that Job experiences, it does, uh, um, it is under the control of God. And so when he says that, that God is the one who took these things away from me, the Bible says in all of this, Job did not sin. So him, him accusing God, I mean, again, he does it in a worshipful way, but him saying essentially, yeah, God is the one who did this to me. It's not wrong. It's not, it's not wrong. And so, but here's the problem that we see, and I've seen, seen this from a few different commentators. They say it's because Job has an accurate and high view of God that he's frustrated with his suffering. If he didn't have a high view of God, he would just say, well, God doesn't know what he's doing. He's not in control. But no, it's because Job understands God's in control that he he has to wonder as to why God would do this to him. And it's the same for the psalmist. If you don't have a high view of God, the existence of suffering and evil isn't nearly as big of a problem because you just assume God's too weak. But for the person with a biblical view of God's power and control, these things are very, very difficult. And so the Bible allows us that space that we see in texts like this to think on this and to question it and to wrestle with it. So the psalmist acknowledges that God has saved in the past and that he's sovereign over salvation, but God isn't saving them now. And this leads to the inevitable question being raised, which is why? Why? So then we see verses 17 to 26, which is searching for an answer. Searching for an answer. Let me read verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. 
Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. So he says, we're innocent, right? Or the, the, the community here is saying, we are innocent. We have not forgotten you, God. Remember, forgetting and remembering was, was key in Psalms 42 and 43, right? Remembering who God is, not forgetting. And it's been a major theme in the Psalms. And here he's saying, we have not forgotten you, God. We've not forgotten you. We've been obedient to you. Our hearts have been set on you. They've been faithful to the covenant. They've been faithful to God's covenant. So their heart hasn't turned back and their steps haven't departed. So both internally and externally, they're obedient. Their heart and their actions are right. Verse 19, he says, Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. The place of jackals is, is a place that's unfit for human habitation. It's, uh, he says, you've covered us with the shadow of death. Remember, David said he didn't fear the, sh- the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23, but here the people are given over to it. So these are extreme words for their condition, and they depict the totality of the suffering that they're in. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So he's saying God knows the heart, right? God would have known if they had sinned. They couldn't have hid that, hidden that from God. So he's calling God essentially to be a witness in his court. He's, he's like Job, right? The similar ideas in the book of Job, where, um, which are much more developed in Job than in, the, in this psalm. But the idea is I need God to testify and to clear me of what seems to be the guilt that I'm in or the, the accusation I'm under. And he says, yet in, in spite of that, we're being killed constantly. We're, they're being treated by the world as sheep to be slaughtered, and we have no worth in the eyes of the world. And so they're crying out to God, asking him for help. And then it ends this way, verse, or sorry, we have four more verses here. So it, then it goes on, I should say, verse 23, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? So this is the human perspective. It's as if God is sleeping. The idea that God's in control. So if things are, are bad, it's because God allowed them to be that way, right? That's the idea here. And God's chosen not to fix it. And so it feels as if God has forgotten them. He said twice in verses 17 and 20, we haven't forgotten you, God, but here they're forgetting or God is forgetting them, and he's confused by this. Verse 25 says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. So bowed down here is the same verb as as cast down, which was repeated in Psalms 42, right? Why are you cast down? Sorry, Psalms 42 and 43, right? Why are you cast down on my soul? So the same bowed down is the same verb, and that's how it feels. They feel like they are cast down to the ground without hope. They feel like they have the curse of the serpent on them. Remember the curse against the serpent, Genesis three fourteen. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So they're in the dust and their belly is clinging to the ground. And so... That's this the same ideas from Genesis 3. This was a curse on Satan, and now they feel as if they're being treated like the enemy of God. So they end with this, verse 26, Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. 
they appeal on the basis of God's chesed, right? His covenant love, his steadfast love. They're asking God to look back on his covenant with his people and to act on their behalf, to not forget them. Even though they don't understand how God's control and his justice work together, they know the only place that they can appeal is to God himself. There's no one else to whom they can go. So they turn to him and they ask for him to save them and to redeem them. So the psalm ends without being resolved, right? It's just a people who we've seen God's past victories, we're seeing our defeat now, and we're asking the why questions, and we're crying to God to help us. Well, in in the gospel, right, we see Christ as the truly innocent sufferer. He, he's the one who who suffers, and he, he truly has done nothing wrong. Right? The idea of someone sinless suffering is very close to the heart of Christianity. It's a theme throughout the Bible, and it's what we place our entire hope on, that someone sinless suffered for us. And so it shouldn't surprise us that our lives will also include many times where we suffer without a just cause. Remember Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We suffer in many, many ways, even if we are righteous. But we know this is part of our history. This is central to our faith, and so we take hope in spite of that. You know, these words of the psalmist actually get incorporated into arguably the greatest text in the entire Bible. What many would say is the, 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 the gem of the Bible, a jewel beyond value. And look at, look at this verse and what hope the gospel gives us in the face of our sufferings. I'll, I'm going to read this a little bit. It's a little bit longer passage. But it's a great place to end. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There you go. Psalm 44 being brought in. In other words, the, the tension the people back then were dealing with, he's now carrying that into this, this new time, right? And he's saying that the same struggle is there. But, but listen, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We have an answer to this age-old problem. It's found only in Jesus Christ.